and welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm going to be hosting In Place of Richard tonight. My name's Keith Morgan. Normally, I'm doing your audio and I'm doing your technical stuff. But tonight, Richard's internet dropped out just moments before we hit the air. So I will be hosting the show. And uh, I think some of you guys like sometimes when I do host the show. But um, we've got Robert Morningstar and we have Timothy Saunders. And they're going to be talking about Titanic and the loss of the Titan. And I'm going to bring them on because uh, I don't like talking that much. And Robert and Timothy have got a nice, a nice little bit of stuff to talk about. So without wasting any time, um, Richard had a whole bunch of things lined up under his items. Um, I wanted him to talk about it over the phone, but he can't see his items. So um, I, I'd have to fill in for what he wanted to say, but I don't have his, I don't have his uh, dialogue for what he was going to say about for each one of them, even though I've posted them. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to bring our guests on. Hi, Robert. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And Timothy? Yeah. Good evening. Good morning. Hi, guys. I'm glad to have you aboard. And um, we're going to be talking about uh, Titanic and Titan and what took place. So, um, let's see, who would like to start this off? Because Richard didn't give me an itinerary of how things were going to go. Well, I don't mind uh, commenting. I'm looking at Richard's uh, items, and I think that he really wanted to talk about item number one a lot. And it has to do with Yvadne Prigozhin, the Wagner Group leader accused of betrayal and treason. Well, it turns out that this whole melodrama Turns out to have been a tempest in a teapot because the whole thing's over. Um, an agreement was mediated by the president of Belarus, uh, Lukashenko. But the whole point was that uh, apparently, it looks like to me there was some kind of friendly fire incident where Russian missiles hit a, an encampment of the Wagner Group. And the leader of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, got in his tank and raced to Rostov surrounded the headquarters there, and they took that to uh, be an insurrection there January 6th, a mutiny, an attempt to overthrow Putin 700 miles away, which made no sense to me this morning. I got up very early in the morning. Something woke me up at about 5 in the morning. I couldn't sleep, and I went and checked and found out about this incident, and so the New York Times, Washington Post, every media outlet in the United States, oh, Putin's going to be overthrown, you know, he's going to be assassinated, Prigozhin is on his way to Moscow, 700 miles away. So we watched it all day, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in like Flynn, with a bunch of spooks who were going back and forth all day, and by the, uh, the evening, this, uh, this evening, we got word that the crisis is over, And apparently it was some huge misunderstanding, of course, you know, the leader of any military group who gets um, hit by missiles from his own side is not going to be happy. So I call it that wonderful phrase that the United States uses so often when they do a major F up. 
friendly fire. Well, it ain't friendly, but it is fire. So that's the latest word. Um, Prigozhin has uh, been sedated, uh, placated, and thanks to uh, President Lukashenko of the Belarus, he was the mediator. So that crisis is over. Okay. Well, for the moment. So, yeah, of course, the rest of the topics are topics for tonight. So I'd like to turn it over to Timothy to start talking about Titanic. Okay, Timothy. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I was just reminiscing, actually, Robert, we did a show standing in for Richard some time ago about Titanic, about the whole... Yes, uh, yes, indeed. The, the theory between uh, yeah. the Titanic being swapped mm-hmm. and... Uh, without going into all the details, because that show is obviously available on the other side of midnight.com. But uh, so we're, we're kind of, what can I say? We have some well, legacy to follow in, in this morning, I believe. Yes, indeed. And as long as, since you mentioned it, I really want to mention our dear friend, our late friend, Gordon James Gianninotto. He was the first one to bring this subject up in 2014. I turned down Coast to Coast AM. And my mind was boggled. I was listening to Gordon James Gianninotto, who was also a host, radio host on uh, Revolution Radio. And he was talking about the swapping of the Olympic for the Titanic, which actually, Tim, that program that you and I and he did about three years ago, we actually proved that it is Olympic on the bottom. And it was you who discovered the proof regarding the shape of the windows, uh, the difference between. So why don't, why don't we rehash that? I mean, this audience wasn't listening that night necessarily. And I think it's the most intriguing part of the entire saga, aside from the um, purported assassination of the three billionaires who were racing back to the United States to stop the, the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. So why don't we go into that? I think it's probably the most interesting part of the whole saga starting with the um, the hawk intentionally colliding with uh, the Olympic that started the whole problem with its malfunctions. Well, firstly, let me just say, you're very kind to remember it that way, but I, I did not discover, I did not make the discovery of how to prove this. I just, perhaps I, as a yacht designer, I knew which details to look at. I mean, other people have done the research and I was well, able to, to put it out. Yeah, what I mean is you found the pictures and you would put them up in your items. And as I was sitting there listening to all the, the, the discussion, going back and forth, I was going over the photographs. And again, my mind was boggling. Oh, mackerel, Tim found the proof. And the proof, folks, was that, as I well, mentioned, <clears throat> well, why don't you tell the audience? Well, the difference well, I, I'm just going to need to go back to the, the main bullet points because there's a lot of a lot of backstory and a lot of details, but I mean, generally speaking, the let, let's see if we can remember it together. The, the, the I think it was more than three years ago as well. I, I, the Olympic was an almost identical ship that was launched before Titanic. In fact, there were three, weren't there? There was the yeah. Olympic, Titanic, and what was the third one? The um, Britannic. Yeah, Britannic. There we go. So the Olympic was out first, and she was sailing. Uh, I even forget where, but somehow the the Navy ship, the Hawk, managed to collide 
with it and it not not just a little bump it was quite a big bang actually and the bow of the the hawk which was actually a naval ship designed to ram other ships and basically sink them so it had a very very strong reinforced bow and a sharp bow even um, somehow that this naval ship managed to hit i think it was the aft three-quarters starboard side that's correct so that's the, um Pretty much, pretty much where the propeller shafts were underneath the vessel, and the bow penetrated um, a vertical line several through several decks, and also damaged uh, apparently the one of the propellers or propeller shafts on the starboard side. Right. So it, the, the vessel did not sink, um, but it, it it did have to come back for sort of some fairly major repairs. And the materials used on the Titanic and Olympic and the uh, the Britannic is is like a sort of a cast iron. And, and the way they put it together is they form these big metal sheets, these huge metal sheets that are actually quite brittle. And they're not always, what can I say, very consistent in their, their uh, metallurgic sort of makeup. So the, the these massive metal sheets are sort of craned into place. This is during construction. And then the holes, holes are created and hot pot rivets are put in into the holes and banged in when they're red hot. And as the pot rivets um, cool down, they contract and they, they pull the whole metal panel tight next to the next one. And that's how basically they build used to build these sides of the ship. But the point is that the metal is quite brittle, and if the metal content is not well controlled or, or as well controlled as it should be, then obviously there can be flaws and weaknesses. And it seems that that plus the fact that this naval ship was designed to ram uh, with a very sharp bow actually did quite considerable damage, quite, quite serious damage uh, internally, structurally. And the Olympic went back to back to back support in in Belfast. Yes, it's uh, it's remarkable that they were able to save the ship. When you see the the gash, the hole, it was a big tri triangular hole in in the rear uh, starboard side. And uh, well, you pointed out something that I suspected, and you came to the same conclusion that it was it was intentional. Be the collision apparently was intentional because J.P. Morgan had been angling to take over the uh, the White Star Line. He was the owner of Cunard, and he wanted to monopolize the transatlantic um, trade, uh, transoceanic uh, passenger trade. And he had uh, wheedled a deal. And if uh, White Star didn't come through, he was going to seize almost all the ships in um, in Britain's uh, let's call it merchant marine, but specifically the transatlantic fleet that was involved in commerce, cargo, and passenger shipping. So you made the astute observation that you thought it was intentional, and I said, you know, you voiced my thought. I wasn't going to say it, but apparently it was, and it was to thwart J.P. Morgan's attempt to just monopolize the entire North Atlantic. I, 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 Robert, didn't JP Morgan lend the money to the shipyard 
in the first place. And so if they did not make their repayments, they would have to return the ships or, or give the ships up in, in place. That, that's, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. The other so, so somehow this Olympic became damaged. Mm -hmm. And the story was that because the Olympic was such a huge colossal ship, that as as it passed the the hawk, which was going in the opposite direction, apparently, that the the current, I think that's right, the current from the the Olympic turned the the hawk around in a, in an uncontrolled manner, and then accidentally collided, which is obviously complete bull BS. Yeah, so <laughs> well, you know, actually, the uh, this is at variance with my recollection of it. It was that the hawk was coming up behind it. And uh, the, the, my recollection of, re, of the reading of the accident was that uh, Titanic was making its way past the, the Isle of Wight uh, and that Hawk came up very quickly behind it and then claimed to have been sucked into the current and uh, spiked the, uh, the Titanic. But it may well be that your scenario is correct, but it doesn't make sense to me if if Hawk was coming down in the opposite direction, the bow waves of the Titanic should have been pushing it away, not drawing it in. So mm -hmm. I remember them saying something about the, the uh, suction of the, of the propellers. And of course, since it was a Royal Navy Board of Inquiry, they were not going to stain the reputation of the Royal Navy. And they laid the blame on the captain of the Olympic. Yes. Which was quite a disgrace. But but then they did patch it up. They did repair it. And you want to tell them what happened after the repair? Well, it, they, they took the ship back to Belfast in in the ship. I've actually visited there. I've been in, in the, the design drafting office. I went there some years ago, probably 20 years ago, to actually see about this shipyard building uh, a new large vessel. Um, so it was, it was quite amazing to go in the very rooms and you know buildings that have been depicted in all the photographs. Yes. Um, so yes, the Olympic came back to the shipyard. It was uh, next to Titanic, which was nearing completion at this stage, and also that the Britannic was the third one that was in the next bay, I believe. I mean, these are huge ships. I mean, if anybody's seen the photographs, the propellers are ginormous you know the, the bow of the ship is towering above the, the town belfast i mean now it's belfast is very different of course um and the theory uh is that rather than um rather than 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 uh just patch up the olympic and put her out as she was the theory was that one weekend and apparently one weekend, if possible, all the crockery and silverware and anything labeled with Olympic was taken off and everything with Titanic was put on board the Olympic. Um, the propeller was taken from the Titanic and put onto the Olympic, uh, Olympic because that was damaged and they're, they're quite huge things and quite difficult things to forge in a short short period of time. So that was borrowed from the actual Titanic and put back onto the Olympic. And the nameplate at the bow 
uh, was also adjusted, taken off the Titanic and put on the Olympic. And that is interesting because we found photographs, if you recall, of what we think is the Titanic at the bottom of the sea with letters of Olympic popping through the corrosion. Yes, I, I found a photograph uh, taken by one of the uh, submersibles, uh, one of the uh, camera submersibles or the wooden hull submersible, and it was very dark. And so I put it in the computer and did a computer enhancement. And That's right. It yes. And I, and I could make out MP. And as I, we said on the show, there's no MP in Titanic. Exactly. That was one one proof. But there is another element that we've left out, which is that the Olympic, after the repair, was able to sail. But when she sailed, she was crabbing. She wasn't uh, being true to her the the keel line. That's that right. Means, twisted. twisted. That? Yeah. You want to describe that uh, for the audience? Some of them. Go for it. You're halfway there already. So. Okay. So. People noticed that when Olympic set off on uh, an, another transatlantic voyage, that she was uh, slipping sideways. She wasn't sailing straight and true, and they had to, they had to compensate uh, with uh, rudder and RPMs on the props to try to make her go straight. But the reason um, that ultimately they decided to uh, basically scuttle her was that on the next to the last trip olympic making its way between new york and southampton passed through the saint george's bank and the captain thought that he had enough clearance from the bottom it must, it must have been toward the low tide but he thought that he had clearance and he sailed through the saint george's bank but he didn't know that there was a sunken ship there. Nowadays, if you go into nautical maps, you'll see the sites of sunk uh, uh, wrecks or sunken ships marked clearly on, on nautical charts and their depth. But they didn't do that in those days. So the Olympic, you know, plowed through the St. George's Bank and it T-boned this sunken ship that was... Uh, several feet below the water and it rolled like a barrel under the Olympic damaging the entire hull from uh, from bow to stern having spun this sunken freighter I suppose it was uh, rolling it like a barrel un under a log and it really damaged the entire bottom and they knew that it could not uh, successfully uh, continue traversing the Atlantic Ocean, especially with the with the hype that they were pushing in advertising that um, these ships were faster, the fastest ships on the Atlantic uh, Ocean. And it was a big race between Cunard and White Star as to whose ships were faster. But apparently the Olympic and the Titanic being newer and um, more up-to-date technology, they were going to be faster. So when they found out, it was basically a total wreck. And you can take over the, uh, the recounting of the legend and what they did after they swapped them uh, in Belfast. They, they pulled them out of their slips one night, 
um, in the middle of the night, as they say, in the dead of night. And then they swapped all of the accoutrements, you know, the, the silverware and the plates and the placards, whatever said Olympic went to Titanic, whatever said Titanic went to the Olympic. But they weren't able to fool the workmen and the crew. So why don't you take it up from there? That's another interesting Sorry, part of the story. Right. There were there were some there were some local workers and so on who were aware of what was going on, obviously, because they were the ones carrying the, the porcelain and silverware and so on. Oh and they they were paid off apparently. Um I don't know if Sort of discussions were going on over over pints of Guinness in the evening or whatever. But uh, it was it must have been fairly obvious there, and word did I get out. But there was one one detail. Um, I'm sure there were many details, but there's one particular detail that was physically different between the two vessels, and that was I forget which deck it is, but I remember we we pulled up all the drawings before, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, they were able to take the profile of the Titanic and overlay it over the, the profile of the Olympic. Mm-hmm. And you can just to prove as, as well what, what, you know, what was, has been previously discovered. And that was at the forward end of one of the upper decks. I think it's, it's either the first or the second deck that's painted white above the, the black hull. There were minor differences in the spacing and the number of the, the round portholes, the small portholes. And that was an intentional difference, uh, a, an evolutionary step, or evolutionary uh, in, improvement um, between the design, you know, the, the drawing board of the Olympic and the Titanic. And this was a, this was like a, a marked physical difference. But I mean, let's face it, such a huge ship that if you stand there, you, you could barely see the difference. Can I it's ask only, a question? Of course. Um, were they doing this because the Titanic was new and the value of the Olympic had degraded so they would make the the Olympic, the Titanic, get rid of her and get the amount paid to them that they would have gotten for this brand new ship that would have been much more valuable? Is that kind of the conclusion we're coming to here? Why they Actually, actually he, he, Morgan and White Star... Not insured. <laughs> they insured it for twice as much as it was worth. It's like like a nine eleven motif. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I well, I think that's where they got the idea for the nine eleven insurance scam. Hmm. We can talk about that later, but you are right, Keith. Um, they saw the loss, and the loss was uh, staggering. So what they did is they insured the fake Titanic having swapped it for Olympic for twice as much as it was worth. And you know what? It took until 1960 for that insurance claim to be resolved. And I know because I have a friend named Roy Schaefer who worked for the company, I think North American Insurance Company, which ultimately had to make the payout. So it wasn't an easy, uh, an easy deal on which to collect. But whatever they collected, it was a fraud that was pulled off on it. Aside from the portholes, um, Tim and I, we, we noticed that the side of the 
the side of the both ships where it's painted white, the main where the main deck is, there is a um, a bulkhead, uh, a sidewall. Let's call it that. And at the stern, toward the stern, where it goes from solid wall and curved down to the rear deck, the curvatures of the steel that was cut, that was different. So the curvature of the craft that's on the bottom of the Atlantic is Olympic. The rectangular windows of the craft that is on the bottom of the Atlantic are rectangular and they're not square. And from pictures that we have of the new Titanic and the new Olympic, we know that the rectangular windows were characteristic of Olympic. But you know, our, our late friend, our late friend, Gordon James Gianninotto, who brought this story to us and did the show with us, he pointed out another, another really important thing. When you look at the wreck of the Titanic on the bottom of the Atlantic now, you'll notice that in the rear section, the deck has collapsed. The stern, the stern is intact, but this whole section uh, behind, uh, behind the main deck has collapsed. And many years later, you know, or just before Gordon passed away, he was, he was really obsessed with this story. And uh, he, he took in every detail. He pointed out to me that that section underwater collapsed while the rest of the superstructure has stay, stayed standing. And he says that, he said to me then, that it was because they were not able to repair the entire rear deck and they had shored it up with timbers. So the timbers deteriorated, rotted underwater, and they collapsed, the wood collapsed, and so the deck collapsed. And if you look at the underwater photographs of Titanic uh, taken by Woods Hole and Bob Ballard and uh, James Cameron, you do see that characteristic, and that for me was the binding tie. That was the one that really settled the whole affair. So, so do you guys think that they actually sacrificed those people for a, an insurance fraud? Well, there's, we're coming up on a break in a couple of minutes, but there's also some other corroborating evidence that kind of joins the dots and... It looks that way, Keith, yes. Yes, it wasn't as cold-blooded as it turned out because the story was that they were planning to have a rescue ship called the California, and the California sailed from New York heading east as Titanic was heading west into the iceberg field, which, which they knew was there. And apparently California... Well, the sole cargo on the California was... I think it was 800 woolen blankets, remember? And life life jackets. And life know? jackets, right. And they weren't able to explain, you know, what was hanging around. Yeah, it was really hanging around. And so that's part of it. They missed they missed yeah. the um, the connection, mixed signals, because when Carpathia shot flares that were supposed to be seen, uh, they were supposed to be seen by... Um, Titanic, there was a, a Norwegian whaling vessel, Q 
killing seals and uh, illegally on one of those icebergs. And they fired their flares to warn their men to get back to the ships because they thought the Royal Navy might be coming by somebody, you know, some, well, it was the Royal Navy they were worried about because they were the policemen of that area of the uh, Atlantic. And they were, they were, Britain had made the, the laws against um, seal hunting illegally and whale hunting, I imagine at the time as well. So they just hightailed it, but they put, they shot up a flare uh, to warn their men and California stopped thinking that was uh, Titanic. So they were quite a, a bit away apart when these events happened. Okay. So the rest of the plan failed. Okay, Rob, um, we're coming up on the uh, bottom of the hour and uh, I'm going to take us into break. Uh, you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our host, uh, your host for tonight is me, Keith Morgan. Uh, Richard lost his internet just moments before we hit the air, so I had to step in. Uh, our guests are Timothy Saunders and Robert Morningstar. And we're talking about the loss of the Titan and Titanic. And it's a really interesting story of what's going on. Sounds like a watery 9-11. So... We'll be back in a moment. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. back to the other side of midnight um we've got a great conversation going on about titanic and the titan let's pick up where we left off uh robert do you have more to contribute um did i lose you robert are you muted unmute or... I, was muted. I was I was muted but i had to get a cup of coffee because i've been up all day since the very dawn yes um other details. 
Well, yeah, there is controversy because of, uh, a lot of people said that uh, the survivors said they didn't see an iceberg. And the story was that there was a 300-foot gash in the side of the ship. And going back to metallurgy, as Tim explained, the Titanic was uh, compiled out of huge uh, iron, iron plates. It wasn't steel. And they were bolted together. The other thing that happens to that kind of steel, uh, excuse me, that kind of iron, is that once it gets into the cold waters of the Atlantic, it becomes more brittle. But the controversy lies with the fact that many people say, most of the passengers said that they didn't see any iceberg. And then there's the legend of the 300-foot gash. In my items, I have included a very good, a very good um, documentary. It is item yes, uh, I think it's item number number two. Video documentary investigating the sinking of the Titanic, and it's uh, rather ironic that one of the people that appears in this documentary is the French, uh, the French gentleman who passed away in, what's his, uh, Paul Navriolet. Uh, I'll have to look at uh, my article on it to get the correct pronunciation of his name. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. But he went down to the Titanic 72 times and he's uh, speaking in this documentary and he says, I've been down there 72 times and I've never seen a 300 foot gash in the side of the Titanic, which, you know, opens up the question, was it an iceberg or was it a bomb? I'll send it back to Tim. Perhaps he can uh, elucidate on that. I would like to point out article number one, SOS, the Titan is missing. Why no SOS? And I've included in, in the article, it's quite a lengthy article. I started it last Sunday and I finished it uh, yesterday with the finding of, of the debris field and um, the announcement by the US Navy that they had heard the explosion, which makes me suspect that the suspense that was maintained and hyped up, that there was a political element behind hiding the fact that they knew on day one what had happened. James Cameron, who made the film and made the dives and did the 3D experience of going down to Titanic, he said he knew it in his bones. He knew in his bones that it was gone, that it was an implosion, and so, Paul-Henri Nagiolet. Let me give you the names of the people who were aboard in memory of those people. Stockton Rush was the CEO and owner of uh, Ocean Gate. Paul-Henri Nagiolet, he was a marine archaeologist. Personally, I consider it a grave robbing. Going down to Titanic and uh, scooping up uh, artifacts and then selling them for millions of dollars. Uh, it's kind of like a tomb robber. 
in, uh, in Egypt. The next man was Hamish Harding. And of course, uh, Mr. Suleiman and Shahzada Dawood. Uh, Mr. Dawood was the richest man I've heard and uh, which is described as the richest man in Pakistan. All of them multimillionaires, which makes that parallel with the three billionaires who were on the Titanic, John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, and Isidore Strauss. But this is a very interesting little piece of video. The It's actually, as far as I'm concerned, the best documentary on the subject. And they call it Investigating the Titanic Drying Up the Ocean. So they do computer graphics of the wreck and they take away the sea. So they just show you the Titanic as if it had wound up on a desert. And a little later, we're going to talk about Stockton Rush and his attitude toward marine safety. But um, they're now there. They're not even in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. They are part of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, they were liquidated. Yeah. I'll send it back to Tim. Go ahead. Well, I got a comment, if that's okay. Sure. This is when, a great comment. When I saw that uh, submersible that was supposed to go to those deaths, I, I got the feeling that it was not well constructed. Um, just looking at it, um, I, I just got this feeling. And and when they said it was missing, the first thing I thought was it imploded, it because it wasn't well constructed. I I'm just looking at it; it didn't look like it was well done. So um, that well, was my first opinion. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right. First impressions are often the best impressions. But you're absolutely right. The, the owner, Stockton Rush, said this. And it's in the article. He did an interview, and he said that he thought that safety is waste. He told CBS News, you know there's a limit. At some point, safety just is pure waste. I mean, if you just want to be safe, don't get out of bed. Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. At some point, you're going to take some risk, and it really is a risk-reward question. I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. How's that for an epitaph? Well, that, that is an epitaph. But, I mean, he, he didn't technically break the rules because Titanic's in international waters, and therefore right. most of those rules don't apply to any vessels going down there. So once these people, these passengers or victims, whichever way you want to look at it, once they signed the waiver, which was pretty, pretty clear. I've seen video coverage of somebody reading it, one of the waivers and actually signing it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it does says this is absolutely an experimental vessel. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of, uh, you know, it, 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 there is a possibility of, you know, damage uh, injury or total loss of total loss and loss of life or something along those lines sign here and uh, yeah I mean Keith you mentioned your first look I mean I've, I've been looking at it quite closely and, and listening quite closely to a number of people I've been pulling up images and I've been looking at the construction techniques and, and so on involved and the design I mean, is very easy to say with with hindsight but uh, I would say the materials they used are questionable and the choice of materials and the choice of construction, I'd say, is very questionable. And there are 
design features, in my opinion, which are uh, ridiculous to, to the extreme in some cases. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are other features which are totally normal for submersible and and uh, probably in shallower water it would have been fine. But the thing is, going down to 4,000 meters, that's a hell of a way down. Um, what's that in feet? That's what, 13, 12, 12 and a half, 13,000 feet or something. That, that's a long way down. 12,000 feet. Was it yeah. target to target depth? And I'm going to make my case later on that this was caused by human error, and the human error was uh, Stockton's. And we're going to get into the pressures. Uh, at the moment, I'm copying a link that I'm going to um, put in the chat, and hopefully uh, Keith can play it for us. It's actually a facsimile of a Morse code message, and I think uh, the audience might enjoy hearing what a, a, a query uh, might have sounded like uh, in Morse code trying to contact either Titanic or Titan. So whenever you're ready, I think we'll give uh, the audience uh, an acoustic experience of all technology which is uh, tried and proven because the New York Times was the first newspaper to learn of the Titanic's sinking because a young ham radio operator in New York City was monitoring um, you know, open frequencies and he picked up he picked up the, um, this, the, the transmission, the Morse code transmission which uh, Titanic sent an SOS. He picked it up and he raced down to the New York Times and gave him the scoop so okay um, i'm ready uh whenever you want to play it yeah play it now and and uh then we can uh we can translate it okay
that was The Tempest by William Shakespeare. <laughs> it was quite long, Robert. <laughs> According to what it says, it said U.S. Coast Guard calling Titan. Well, the translation was, um, like I said, I made up, I made up the signal. Okay. And it was U.S. Coast Guard calling Titan. Why no SOS? Um, then it goes on uh, to say, uh, question, loss of propulsion, hardware malfunction, loss of communication, or human error. And so I will make the case that later on that it was human error. Let me turn it back to Tim. I think... I think it would be useful to go through the echo there sometimes. Be useful to go through the the basics of the design just to point out how how it was made, how it was designed. Um, it it is essentially a two titanium half or two titanium domes, um, one at each end. Uh, the the cylinder in the middle um, was was a a rolled, rotated, uh, rotationally uh, rolled uh, carbon fiber element. I'm, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine it's prepreg, which means that the carbon fiber already, which is kept cold from the you know the day it's created in the factory, is kept cold, and it has the resin impregnated into the fiber. So this continuous ribbon was rolled, I should say, the cylinder was rotated, and then the ribbon um, was like like a like a ball like a reel of cotton, if you like, the reel of cotton being the cylinder, and the cotton being the carbon fiber, like a ribbon of carbon fiber. It was about I don't know, I'm guessing six inches wide, something along those lines, maybe wider. And the cylinder was revolved and the cotton was loaded up and wound up around increasing the wall thickness of the cylinder. And so it became, I think it was five inches thick. So that's, that's a lot of carbon fiber and it's a lot of, a lot of rolling that cylinder. Um, and ultimately with prepreg, again, I'm guessing this, I don't know this, but I'm imagining that this is probably the most logical thing is that the prepreg carbon fiber was then put into an autoclave where um, it, it's the pressure is increased and the temperature is increased, and then the resin, which was kind of frozen in in the uh, the carbon fiber itself, then comes out and impregnates the whole uh, material. So it becomes like a, like a wine glass. You know, you flip the corner of a wine glass, and it, it's it's just ringing. And this the idea is that this carbon fiber becomes like it, in one uh, sort of heating and pressure system it will it will become like one what can i say uh totally solid uh impenetrable surface is, is the idea incredibly strong uh it's also how we build masts on on sail ships and so on the, the carbon fiber racing ones as well i mean they're incredibly strong um the preparation for it can be months and then the autoclave, the heating up and that the pressure uh, session maybe takes 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. It depends on, on the products and the size and so many other different factors. So essentially you have this incredibly strong cylinder with 
two um, titanium ends, which domes, which are, which are then sleeved over and essentially bonded on. I mean, I saw a video of, you know, this bonding paste between the, the titanium. Titanium is a very strong, very, very expensive metal. Um, but essentially it was bonded on like two end caps onto the cylinder. Now, obviously when you go up high in altitude, then any air inside is trying to get out and expand into the atmosphere where the pressure is lower, but underwater, it's completely the opposite way around. Any, all of the atmosphere is trying to get inside and penetrate the, the submersible. So there's, by the time you get down to, you know, 4,000 meters or thereabouts, I mean, you're talking about absolutely incredible amounts of power, uh, pressure, uh, all trying to compress and push this thing down and just, just trying to collapse it into, into nothing. So, Everything has to be pretty, pretty strong. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, there's to get in the vessel. Um, one end is unbolted, and people climb in uh, into sort of the end of the open cylinder. Um, this is this is part of the, the titanium dome. And once people are inside, then the dome is is closed up. I guess you know. I hope they checked for any any you know dust particles and so on around the the flanges of the between the the titanium dome and the ring that's bonded on the end of the cylinder and essentially a number of bolts are tightened up and that's it people are inside if you want to come out you have to unbolt all of these bolts around the outside of the circumference of the dome and then the machine the the, the crane i guess the crane or the the, the hydraulic system again i don't know 100 percent, but there is some machine to aid that you know kept pulling this heavy end cap off and then people are allowed to to walk in and out uh, to walk out again now there was also a glass a glass window there was a window at one end which in fact i believe was not glass um and that that was acrylic this as far as i can see from the research i've done so far acrylic and probably the thickness of that acrylic would have been, I don't know the dimensions, but we're talking incredibly thick. So whether it's, it's uh, you know, six inches thick, eight inches thick, 10 inches thick, I really don't know the thickness, but I mean, we're talking about a massively thick acrylic uh, window pane. And uh, as part of the construction of this, wouldn't they have tested uh, that before they actually put people in them? They, they did a number of test dives, um, but what's interesting is apparently this was called, was it called the Cyclops 2, I believe? Um, but somewhere along the evolution of the build, there were problems and the manufacturers who were brought in to sort of, to build this, this, this vessel, put it together, assemble it, um, had problems and they actually said, well, I think we're going to have to do it again. And I think that whether it was the end cap mounting or bonding or something along those lines, I, I don't really know all the details, but there was a significant problem earlier on and the production was halted and it was reversed and it, it needed to be reworked before it was able for the product the project was finished. So right. even before it, it became wet, it, it had it had an issue. 
I'm sorry to be so vague, but I'm, I'm going on writing on words I've heard in various interviews and as opposed to, you know, having a specific... Yeah, I read a bit about it. And one of the things, one of the lapses in safety was that Stockton Rush was told that he should have it tested by a third party and he refused to do that. He was told that machinery like this, new technology, uh, not only had to be tested uh, thoroughly by the manufacturer, but that they should hand it over to a third party to do the testing themselves uh, to confirm the safety. But as you heard me read his statement, he said safety is a waste. So I, I think his uh, spirit may be regretting those words because mm -hmm. they're going to be his epitaph, but it's going to be a lesson to anybody else who gets involved in such ventures, whether they are under sea or in outer space. This brings to mind um, another tragedy, <clears throat> similar, because I'm going to make the, the case that the implosion was caused by uh, negligence. But it reminds me of the crashes of one of the most beautiful airliners of all time. Actually, the first jet airliner was uh, made by Great Britain. It Comet. was the Havilland Comet. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely beautiful air aircraft with uh, swept back wings and the engines mounted inside nacelles in the wings. They didn't hang out. They were very streamlined, but they started to fall out of the sky. And when they brought them up, the analysis was that they had succumbed to metal fatigue. And the reason was that the pressurization of the cabin and the depressurization over hundreds of takeoffs and landings had created metal fatigue and hairline cracks in the aluminum composite that was used in 1948 through 1952. No, you, yep. you, have, you read my mind. I was going to reference that that, that plane myself. Well, and you, you go ahead, tell us more. Well, the, there's a specific reason why the metal fatigue was occurring. And I agree. It, it, I'm not biased because it's a British design or whatever. But I mean, if you go back, it was literally one of the first airliners. This is before, I don't think it's before, but certainly in parallel to when Boeing were... were developing their also their, their first airliner as well. I mean, it, it, it could have been, you know, the predominant airliner in the world, but it didn't it because unfortunately it fell out of the sky, Yeah, um, which is obviously not very good for its uh, reputation. But there was a very specific reason why the metal fatigue occurred. And that is because the portholes, which are um, actually a nightmare, an engineering nightmare for any aeroplane. It'd be much, much better to have little cameras on the outside of the, uh, the plane and have little flat screen TVs screens on the inside and just pretend you're looking out the window when in fact you're looking at a TV screen behind a curtain or behind a blind with a video camera on the outside because that way you'd keep the structure intact. It's a far, far better way. Um, but of course now we have technology where we do have flat screens, but again, when, when these airlines were developed, there was no such thing as a flat screen. It was all cathode ray tube and the depth of a television was, you know, what, you know, 12, 18 inches deep or something. So that was not possible then. But to come right back to it, so portholes being an engineer's nightmare, 
the comet had square corners and they actually corrected the problem and they stopped falling out the sky very quickly as soon as they put a radius in each corner of the porthole and once you have a rounded corner then the stress does not culminate in that corner and those fractures never materialize and this is just as simple as that right the sad thing similarly you know stockton rush was warned about material structural failures and the need for testing but the faa when they looked at the plans of the comet originally they said to the de havilland designers you know it's a bad idea to have square windows on the craft precisely for the reason that tim has outlined it concentrates the stresses right at the corners. And that's exactly where the stress fractures began and then propagated into other sections of the fuselage. So the FAA told de Havilland, no, you know, you really ought to put round or oval windows. And that's why when you get in airliners today, you don't have, you don't, you don't have right angle corners on any of your windows. You also have a double plexiglass uh, inside and out, which, uh, causes some very interesting video effects when you're shooting video at a bright object. The object will be reflected on the inner panel back into the inside of the outer panel and you'll get uh, what looks like UFOs in your video. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a big flaw. There's a there's a great movie. They were, you know, this was a, a terrible terrible thing that was happening and Hollywood jumped on the case and they made a movie analogous to this story and it was with James Stewart and Marlena Dietrich and it's called No Highway in the Sky and it's about airplanes that uh, they were crashing and their tails were falling off and James Stewart plays an eccentric engineer who's figured it out that the vibrations and the stresses are going to make the tail fall off and he he gets a little bit um He gets a little bit eccentric about it, and he's on an airplane with Merlina Dietrich, and he goes over to her and he says, "Look, I think the tail's going to fall off this plane. So if anything happens, the safest place is way back there behind all the seats, with your back to to the rest of, of the seating, and maybe you'll survive." And so uh, he creates this uh, hysteria, and then in, in another flight, you know, he's called up before the Congress to testify on safety and. He gets on an airplane and he just wants to stop it from taking off. So he pulls the landing gear up while uh, the plane is taxiing to prevent it from going up. So he wrecks the plane, but ultimately he did save he did save the uh, passengers because during the hearings they've been doing these testing, stress testing. They take an airliner and they start hammering away, creating vibrations on it to uh, see. Okay, uh, the effect. Robert, I'm going to I'm gonna have to break in. Uh, we're uh, a few seconds okay. out from the uh, top of the hour. So, okay, I'll finish it after the break. Okay. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest tonight is uh, Robert, uh, Robert Morningstar and Timothy Saunders. We'll be back after the break. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.